This is an ABC podcast. Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. How good is Australia? We respect the independence of the fourth estate. Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello, I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And the Prime Minister is overseas, PK. But that doesn't mean relief from politics back home. I could only make the observation that the, the raids that took place occurred in accordance with Australia's laws and accordance with a, an Australian Federal Police that acts independently of government ministers um, doing their job. That's the Prime Minister. He was in the UK being asked about the raids that happened this week, the police raids on the homes of Annika Smethurst, who's a News Corp journalist, and on the ABC offices in Ultimo in Sydney. Now, Labor is completely unhappy with these raids and not happy either with the government's response so far. Here's the Shadow Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus. Mr Morrison can't hide behind Mr Dutton, who's in a cowardly way hiding behind the police. What has to happen is that they both need to stand up and explain to Australians why some of the freedoms that our forefathers fought for are being threatened. And PK, it seems as though the government does now understand that this has all got a bit of a head of steam up. I think when you look at the Daily Telegraph and you see a huge front page declaring it's a war on truth, and then you turn on 2GB and even Ray Hadley is complaining about these laws, I think the Prime Minister started to understand a little more was required. I've been in discussion with uh, editors today and others and they've expressed their concerns to me about these issues and I think it's important that we just pause and and as these issues are worked through in the, in the days ahead that if there are any issues that we have to uh, address then I'm open to discussing those. Open to discussing those, PK? What do you think that means? Because the government wasn't actually very open to discussing the law changes when they brought them in. <laughs> at some point last year, were they? What do you think he means? Well, look, what's extraordinary here is just to hear the shift in tone. It is actually quite significant and it just demonstrates how seriously they're taking this. There's a reason they're taking it so seriously. Wall to wall, the media is at one on this. News Corporation, the ABC, after this Double hit this week, triple hit if you include also Ben Forden who was asked questions. So we start with Annika Smethurst, her home being raided, her underwear drawers for crying out loud being gone through by police. Hours the Christmas and decorations. Hours. Yeah, cookbooks, everything, right? She found things she hadn't seen for years. <laughs> hours and hours of a raid. The day after the ABC's Ultimo officers being raided again for hours and hours, being actually live-tweeted by John Lyons, who is our boss, actually, Fran. Um, who that was inspired, I thought. It really? was, and it just, just demonstrates... Just the journo he is, doesn't it? Yeah, ge- yeah, demonstrates that he's a journo first and, uh, you know, a manager later, and mm. that is what we need, actually, in news organisations, people who think about journalism first. Now... This happening one day after the other is part of the problem for the government. They, they've been arguing, as as Peter Dutton said in his official statement, this is arm's length, this is an AFP thing, we didn't tell them to do anything, but the optics are terrible. The optics have been 
disastrous for the Australian Federal Police and for the government. It doesn't it's matter global, if they say PK. it has it's gone global. The CNN, BBC, the public broadcasts of Germany, Holland, Canada, New Zealand, the New York Times, Al Jazeera, they've all weighed in on this. Is this what a free media looks like? If it does, if this is what a free media looks like, because that's what they were arguing at the start, you remember, mm. every interview question. We believe in a free media, said government ministers, including the Prime Minister. Well, if this is what a free media looks like, people are saying it's not good enough. That's not what a free media should look like in a country like ours, in a democratic country like ours. It's not what it should look like. So it goes to law reform. Now, this is the thing now. The police operate under the laws that exist of the land. So if these are the laws, then the laws are broken. Well, in fact, the laws have been changed since these two um, media stories that are the focus of these raids and they've been toughened up in a sense because there was the foreign interference laws brought in since them which make it more dangerous for certainly whistleblowers and initially for journalists so there's been some carve out there still though a problem basically it's a bit unclear here whether the journalists are the target of these raids because the Attorney General came on my program uh, this week and, and went, was at great pains to say quite quickly, oh, this was the target of this was not the journalist. The target is the person who did the leaking of these classified secret documents. But that's not what the AFP warrant said. The AFP warrant says it was about the publication of these documents. It's unclear here. It's unclear too whether the raids on the ABC, even though the police said there wouldn't be anyone jailed today as a result of this when they made the raids, not clear yet that those raids couldn't ultimately end up with journalists being prosecuted. So, you know, these are high stakes here and uh, the laws do need to be looked at. And, you know, there's been repeated ongoing calls for better shield laws for whistleblowers working for the government, the government departments. Clearly, that's where this discussion has to go now. And then it's the whole issue about how do we get to the bottom of who is responsible for these raids? Yes, the police carry them out, but who were the ones that sort of started this ball rolling? Look, there is a strong political dimension here too, though, because really there's been strong bipartisanship on national security laws broadly. And so Labor's changed its tone a bit over these raids. What well, does Labor that mean? did argue against those laws, though. Remember, there was a bit of a ding dong, and and they and remember the government accused them of being weak on national security because they were dragging their feet on it and insisting on inquiries. Labor didn't cave completely, but in the end, yes, they backed the laws. That's true, but it was a concerted campaign again from the media organisations, particularly Labor coming in behind that, that got some of the carve outs. But yeah, ultimately, these laws went through with bipartisan support. The discussion is going to get pretty intense for the Prime Minister. I don't think he can really kick the can down the road given the anger from media executives and journalists working on the ground. And I actually think public, the public, means the public interest test has been proven in all of these stories. I don't think there's any doubt that these stories are in the public interest. I mean, with Annika Smethurst's story, this is a story about spying on Australians. I, I, I think the public has a right to know about the government's discussions and potential plans about spying on Australians. It also is the, quite obviously the, in the public interest. Yeah, and Mark Dreyfus, when he was speaking to me, the Shadow Attorney General, said, well, where's the national security interest here? Because if this was going to become law, it was going to the parliament anyway. So it wasn't going to be kept secret. I thought that, thought that was a pretty good point. And just to remind people of the other story from Dan Oakes and Sam Clark, I mean, that was a story about whether our defence forces were sort of glossing over or hiding or, or not investigating crimes against civilians in war in Afghanistan, in particular, committed by our special forces. And it, it talked about one of the documents talked about 
ingrained problems within special forces and organisational culture, including a warrior culture and a willingness by officers to turn a blind eye to poor behaviour. Now, I think you can argue too, that's very much in the national interest. If I can just change the conversation a bit, because something happened at the beginning of the week that I know now feels like 3,000 years ago, (laughs) but it wasn't actually 3,000 years ago. It was a lot closer. So at the beginning of the week, we had the announcement from Anthony Albanese, the new Labor leader, on the roles he was going to give to people who'd been selected to be on his front bench and some really interesting decisions he made there. The most interesting in my view, I mean, there were many interesting ones, we'll get to them, is the appointment of Christina Keneally, former New South Wales Premier. Senator Christina Keneally will, of course, be Deputy Leader in the Senate, but will also fulfil the important positions of being Shadow Minister for Home Affairs as well as Shadow Minister for Immigration and citizenship. Now, I think that's pretty interesting, given if you just recall just a week ago, Christina Keneally was, you know, the way I've been describing it is kind of busting up the New South Wales rights business model by making sure that she became the deputy Senate leader and also making sure that she actually got herself onto the front bench too with Ed Husick standing down. And now being given this role, which I think is quite pivotal, what it demonstrates to me, and I think it's a bit risky for Labor personally, quite risky actually, is that Labor wants to be more proactive in this space, taking on Peter Dutton. Why I think it's risky is this has never historically worked for Labor. Now, I don't don't see any evidence that the world has changed dramatically, that it will now work in their favour, but clearly they've made a strategic decision to take Peter Dutton on. Yeah, that's true. Um, That's pretty clear that the last Shadow Minister, Shane Newman, in a number of these areas, border protection in particular, boats, etc., the national security stuff was always done by Mark Dreyfus, the Shadow Attorney General, but now they'll be in the same bailiwick. And generally, Labor's tried to keep a lead on things and they very much wanted the message to be there's not a sort of cigarette paper of difference between the government and us on border security when it comes to boats. Putting Christina Keneally in this portfolio is, you know, she's a scrapper. She's a strong communicator. She doesn't take a backward step. In the election campaign, people might remember, she came out and I think called Peter Dutton the most toxic man in the parliament. So what is the rationale? Well, I think... It's to take the fight up to Peter Dutton, to take him on, and surely the assessment there, the equation there must be that Labor thinks that Peter Dutton is unpopular and that if they can keep a focus on him, that won't work for the government. Now, I think it's risky too because, as you say, it keeps this issue of border security on the front foot and the government and Labor have in the past both made the assessment that when Labor's talking about boats, it doesn't work well for Labor. So I'm not sure how this is going to go. There is room perhaps for Christina Keneally to carve out an area in Homeland Security beyond boats, and that is an area that talks about immigration. There's a lot of problems here about people stuck on visas for a very long time. There's national security laws that especially in the context of these raids now, they are vulnerable on. So, you know, will Christina Keneally be able to focus there and keep the focus on boats? That's really really the question, I think. I think that is the question. And it'll be quite an achievement if she manages to really change the dynamics around that issue. If she does, really, she will be a bit of a Labor hero. A long time ago, they gave this issue of immigration matters to um, Julia Gillard in opposition. And she, a bit like Christina Keneally, she was one of the best performers for Labor at that time. And she was really, you know, stepping forward and giving it a big roost. But ultimately, it didn't work for her either. 
Shane Wright is the National Economic Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. Welcome to our party. Thank you so much. I'll get the uh, alcohol out now and start partying like it's 1999. (laughs) Well, party like it's a few years ago anyway. I mean, it's great to have you here this week, Shane, because this week we got the first interest rate cut in three years. And the worst GDP quarterly figure, I think, since the GFC, so not quite 1999, but, you know, a fair way back. And despite all of that, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, backed the Treasurer, saying that the economic outlook is still expected to strengthen later this year and this rate cut did not reflect a weaker outlook. That was the quote. How do you make sense of all this for us, Shane? Well... Let's go back a a few months in time when the Reserve Bank in December was predicting the economy would be growing around Uh 3.75%, trying to increase trying to encourage people that uh, wages were about to go through the roof and that uh, everything was bright and shiny. And there were a handful of economists at the time saying, oh, Phil, you're having us on. Really? We don't think you're right. And they've been proven correct and Phil and the team have got it wrong. And so we we get to this point where uh, the cash rate is at 1.25%, even through the Great Depression. It didn't get down that sort of level. To put it more perspective, the RBA is now saying, oh, the economy is going to grow probably 2.75%. But to get to that, it actually is anticipating that interest rates are actually going to fall further. So they Mm. they talk about market pricing. The financial markets reckon that there'll be another rate cut by October. So we'll have the cash rate at 1%. That gets you at a growth at 2.75% this year and next. And hopefully... And this is what Phil Lowe and the team at the RBA is hoping is really low unemployment, really bringing it down from where it is at 5.2. And business is now calling for big reforms to deal with all of this, productivity, industrial relations. What do you make of their calls? Sorry to interrupt, but they're really just following on from the Reserve Bank Governor because he might have got some of those predictions wrong, Shane, but he sure has been sort of putting out a clarion call to the government to come on and do some more reform, hasn't he? Yeah, it's like the uh, the Teddy Whitten of uh, the VFL uh, saying, come on, <laughs> come give it on. to him. But um, in this case, like big business or business says, yes, we want IR reform. I'm not convinced that IR reform <laughs> would actually deliver what they actually want, which is higher wages. This is one of the issues that's going on around the world, whether IR will enable firms to employ more. The big story is actually wages growth. And the RBA wants people getting higher wages. Yeah. And uh, Phil Lowe has been explicit in that regard. He's also been explicit in saying, look, the government needs to start spending a bit more, even what it is. Now, to put this all in some more context, the government is actually trying to tighten fiscal policy right at the moment. Running a budget surplus is a tightening of fiscal policy. It takes money out of the economy. And at the same time, you've got the Reserve Bank taking cash, the cash rate down to its lowest level ever to try and put money into the economy. Some would say that uh, fiscal and monetary policy are running at loggerheads at the moment. Mm. And and it's all very well for the Treasurer to point to the tax cuts that will be stimulatory once we eventually get them, and that's a whole other podcast, really. But if you look at the last budget and the election campaign, in terms of structural reform, in terms of productivity efforts, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of money in terms of education at all, nothing for higher education except for apprenticeships, that kind of thing. You know, there's still no energy policy. That's one of the big things that uh, major businesses are talking about. So the government's really got some policy work to be doing that it that it hasn't done for a while. And the problem is three weeks ago, 
there was an election and the agenda for the government was pretty clear, which was not to do too much, didn't want to frighten the horses. And so then you get into this the tension within a new government saying, well, we've got pressure from the usual offenders, we've got the pressure from the Reserve Bank as well, saying you've got to do something, but do they have any sort of electoral carriage or potency to actually pass through with anything substantive. You'd have to argue, especially the way Josh Frydenberg talked about this earlier in the week, when he was pressed on, what would you do? And he's saying, well, we've got our tax cuts. And that's about it. And you go, right, thanks for coming. So they've yeah. got a blank canvas in many ways. As annoying... That's a glass half full way. Oh, I'll tell you why I'm seeing it that way. Because, well, I don't see it entirely that way. I would have liked as a journalist and the public's right to know what the reform agenda is. I think that should be taken to an election. But given it wasn't, it does provide some opportunities for work, doesn't it, Shane Blue Wright? sky thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like they could actually do something. They'd have to, you know, convince voters that it was, it was a good idea. But there is actually an opportunity here. That is a real glass half full. In fact, I think you've got three quarters full there. (laughs) Remember when uh, Malcolm Turnbull got re-elected in 2016, the whole theory was, right, we're going to honour our promises because we can't break our promises, which is what Tony Abbott did and got us into all this sort of trouble. Now, you've said, right, uh, we didn't make any promises, so we can't break anything. But then you can scare the hell out of people if you come up with changes which run counter to the the narrative that you were running at the election campaign. The problem is the narrative of the election campaign is we're great economic managers, things are going well, all the threats from Labor. Three weeks later, we've got an interest rate cut, the economy's slowing, unemployment's lifted. Oh, hold on. Things aren't going so well. And you've got Crazy Don over there in Washington threatening all sorts of catastrophes to anyone who gets in his way, which is the real big risk, which no one wants to really talk about here. I think you're talking about the president of the free world. <laughs> I'm thinking the crazy States. Don. I, I think finally there's only that. one crazy Don in this world. <laughs> and look, and, and this week the World Bank downgraded its forecast for global growth because we've got Trump roulette being played out in terms of uh, tariffs everywhere. Principally, the biggest risk for us is he's doing this with China, our biggest market for Mm. all that valuable iron ore. Look, if we can just change the conversation, Fran and I have been talking about this already at the beginning of the podcast, but I think it is the biggest story of of the week and actually the world in many ways. I'm not saying it's the biggest story in the world, but it's getting international (laughs) coverage is what I'm trying to say. Has something happened with Harry and Megan? Yeah, that's right. Did you see that fist bump? we're here on the party Did you see the fist bump between Donald Trump and the... Did you see (laughs) Harry hanging back, you know, Did you see Camilla's wink? We need a a royal podcast. Actually, there's a few of those. No, let's talk about the raids. (laughs) The raids on the ABC, the call that Ben Fordham got, the raids on Annika Smethurst's house. There is, you know, where to, where to start, where to begin, and the government's response. We've already talked about the fact, Shane, that the government's changed its tone a little bit, uh, obviously feeling the heat from media companies, but also I think the mood in the public where people go, hang on a minute, what's going on here in Australia? Where do you think this will all lead? If I was optimistic, just like you, Patricia, I'd be hoping that the government would come back and re-look at its laws And these are the ones that were passed last year and actually start having that discussion about the the trade-off between a free and open society and the the willingness of governments of both persuasions to try and hide things from people. I'm not convinced because we've had, well, since 2001, everything in this space has been clouded by national security. If you throw up the national security uh, blanket, it smothers everything. Like the arguments around, say, Annika's story 
and the reason she got raided or the ABC, you can't argue national security in those spaces. But that was thrown up immediately. It actually disheartens me a fair bit as a, as a working journalist to see where we've come as a society because at the heart of everything, a society like ours needs a free and open press and the ability to expose what's going on and that's being challenged everywhere. And, and Shane, it's always challenged under the purview of, you know, getting the balance right between a right to a free press <clears throat> and national security concerns, protecting national security. And this is where it's always hard to argue to a winning position here because what are the rules around what's in the national security? Who decides what's in the national security? What are the indicators for um, media organisations as they try and work that, that through? And is that a sliding scale, if you like? In this case, I mentioned earlier, you know, as Mark Dreyfus has said in the last day or so, well, what's national security about that story that Annika Smithhurst was revealing when any changes to the rules around the remit of the Australian Signals Director would have to be brought to the Parliament anyway. So what's so secret about that? Is this an issue that journalists, you know, fight it hard to win on? Yeah, I, I'm actually thinking of my father who uh, says uh, one of the things he taught me was that there is no such thing as degrees in honesty. And no. this is the same same situation where the use of national security to cover all matter of sins, even though the general public may not understand that this has a deep and meaningful impact on their lives at that particular moment. There's another slice of skin taken off towards a world where you live in ignorance and that's not the world that I hope that we live in. I just think what's extraordinary here and I do think this is worth raising is the breathtaking hypocrisy. The government, you know, doesn't seem to be investigating leaks that it ends up going on, you know, talkback radio and backing in. These are clearly what appear to be, help me out here, Shane, orchestrated leaks on national security sometimes. It's investigating leaks that make them look bad. Well, this goes to say the Ben Fordham issue, whereby he just announced, right, I understand that there's six boats maybe heading their way towards us from Sri Lanka a decade ago. That was put out in press release. Yeah. And now we've got to a point where it's a national security issue. Oh, come on. Come on. And you're ringing up radio presenter saying, oh, look, we've got issues. What's the issue? Sorry, if I was in Colombo and had a pair of binoculars, I might have been able to report it live. (laughs) It goes to what Peter Grester and others have said, you know, is this the new normal? It can't be. And the impact of this, the chilling effect is the words used on journalism and on whistleblowers. And I suppose that that's the fear, that's the danger and the concern here, that this will, this kind of move is intimidatory. It intimidates those who would blow the whistle or would go to journalism and give them documents and it is designed to intimidate the journalists who then make use of those documents. How do we guard against that, I suppose, and how big an impact is this likely to have? How, how chilling an effect? Media organisations, I think, will march on and go the hue and cry about this, but it's whether it affects whistleblowers and those who are prepared to stand up and say, look, there's something that the public deserves to know or needs to know. And I'd say that comes immediately to the ABC story about events in Afghanistan. Mm. That's like, would somebody be prepared in the future knowing that the AFP is about to come in and look through your cookbooks to see what you've got? Will that chill the ability of whistleblowers to do it? And history 
is resplendent in this case. Look, you go all the way back 100 years ago to the United States, where it was a book by an accused muckraking journalist that exposed the terrible conditions under which meat was produced in Chicago. And that led the Roosevelt administration to change laws. This is the the history of it. If you wanted ignorance about the quality of beef in your pie, well, go back 120 years where it could have killed you. This is the spectrum that we live on now. Anything that undermines that, we actually have to really question. Don't be chilled. That's the message. Shane, it's great to have you on the party room. Thank you. I'll go back to my my little hole and uh, have a quiet drink for both of you. No, you go back to shining, letting the sunlight in. Bye, Shane. (laughs) Cheers. See you, Shane. All right, now it's time for question time. So many questions coming in. It's great. Just deal with a couple today. Our first one comes from Concerned Kokerman on Twitter. says, why are people not talking about Tasmania the same way they're talking about Queensland following the election? PK, that's a good question. It's a great question. I think there are more seats in play in Queensland. That's part of the story. And also this issue of Adani played out in Queensland in a way that was quite spectacular and I think has really captured people's attention because, you know, it was it was an issue obviously for Labor and the way that they were talking about jobs. So I think that's a lot of the reason. But I do actually take on the point, I think, I wonder if it's one of those national media prisms. So at the, at the national level, this is the case. But I think in Tasmania... As they're talking about these stories, it's a bit of a different story, but it's true. In fact, what is true is that the swing to the government was actually nationwide too. <laughs> like, even if you look at states like Victoria, the gains that Labor thought they would make ended up just not happening. Sure. You know, they gained a couple of seats that were notionally Labor anyway. So, you know, it wasn't just about Queensland. There is a national story here. Yeah, that's true. Though the, the the vote, the primary vote for Labor collapsed in Queensland to just under twenty eight percent. I think it's as John Howard always likes to say, politics always comes down to the arithmetic, and I just think it's the numbers of seats at play, isn't it? Too. I mean, Tasmania has five seats, so it can only be as influential as five seats lets it be. <laughs> and in Queensland, there are a whole lot of seats at play, and Labor has ended up with a small handful of them. So I think it's really about you know we started off the campaign saying this election could be won or lost in Queensland, and that's because there was, you know, numbers of seats that were very, very marginal in that state. I think there was 13 of them. So if Labor had swung four or five of those seats, we would be looking at a completely different election result than we have. It's always about the numbers. Look, we've got another question from Larry, and it's a really smart question, actually. Given the huge amount of pork barrelling in Karangamite, and that's an electorate for anyone who doesn't know, a very marginal electorate that ended up going to Labor because it was redistributed in Victoria. And the question goes, in Karangamite by the Libs, does that mean the government has to honour those promises even though they didn't win the seat? It's a fantastic question. And the answer is, yes, they do. They do. Or they can break a promise. that, Larry. Or they they can can break a promise. I mean, you're right to point this out, Larry, because there were a a huge number of promises made in Karangamite. It was pointed out a number of times during the campaign, perhaps under the headline pork barrelling, something close to $3 billion worth of promises. Two billion of that was a train line, a high-speed rail line to Melbourne, which, of course, doesn't only help Karangamite. Um, But there was lots and lots of money for local sports clubs, a whole lot of promises like that. Uh, Now I've 
checked. Yes, just because you don't win the seat doesn't mean you don't honour the promises. Of course, a government has to honour the promises. Perhaps the timeliness of honouring those promises might be an issue that everyone wants to keep an eye on. And there is an example for us to look on, to be guided on this, which is Rebecca Sharkey in the seat of Mayo. She was the independent. There was a lot of money promised by the government in that by-election. It was promised to try and help Georgina Downer win the seat. She didn't win the seat and she didn't win it at the federal election either. But remember the images of Georgina Downer with the government cheque, handing over the cheque, honouring the promises made during the by-election. So, you know, there is some precedent here. Yeah, that's right. If you make the promise, I think you should stick to the promise. Now, that's it from us. Until next week, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your people. Tell your people. And if you want to tell us anything or ask us anything, actually, with Question Time, you want to send in a question, want to give us some feedback, just tweet us using hashtag the party room or email us on thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Next week we'll be taking just a quick break, but don't go far. There'll be plenty more political shenanigans to talk about in the days and weeks to come. We will be back. We, are we will here be for back. You. See you, friend. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.